I broke into a house that was up for rent because I was homeless and I slept in this house. Well, somebody came in uh, the, the day after I broke in and to show some people the house to possibly rent it. Well, I was passed out on the floor with needles next to me. Hi, this is Shlomo Sosin, the host of the Teenage Impact Podcast, where we share stories, tips, and specific strategies on how you as a teenage kid can overcome any struggle in life. Whether you're going through anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts, I've interviewed 65 people from around the world on your struggles, what they have gone through, and how you can overcome struggles just like them. I have a great announcement to make. My new book, Never Fight Alone, it's a compilation of 51 inspiring interviews on what they did to overcome their struggles and improve their mental health, is releasing September 15th. It's going to be releasing in hardcover and ebook. So I want you to click the link in the description to learn more information about the book and sign up for notifications on when the book and where you can find the book to purchase it. Today's podcast guest is Tony Hoffman. Tony Hoffman is a former BMX Olympic coach. He is currently a substance abuse and mental health speaker. He has given hundreds and hundreds of presentations around the world, including elementary, middle school, high schools, colleges, and successful companies. He's also currently the podcast host of One Choice, where he provides tips to help people maintain sobriety and succeed at what they're doing. He is the founder of a nonprofit organization called the Free Will Project, where he mentors thousands of youth through action sports. His life wasn't always this easy. He had, it looks like he had a maid in high school where he was ranking the one of the top BMX athletes in the world just in high school. But inside, he had his own mental health issues. He started experimenting with alcohol and drugs. He got a little bit out of hand when he fell into a drug addiction. Eventually, he got to a certain point in his life where he had to rob someone else's place to get those substances. He eventually became homeless for six months and landed in prison for two out of the four years. He turned his life around and he became the person he is today. So I want you to give it up for Tony Hoffman as we talk about his story with drug addiction and how he went from that to being homeless, to being in prison, to being an Olympic coach. Give it up for Tony Hoffman. How are you, Tony? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I guess as well as I can be right now. <laughs> man, Tony, man, you've um, had a lot of accomplishments over the years, but you've also had a lot of struggle, struggles. And we'll go into that um, later in this podcast. But I, the first question I want to ask you is, how did you get involved with BMX? I actually was introduced to BMX when I was like around 12 years old, seventh grade. My brother was racing BMX. He had a couple friends that were also racing BMX. At that time, I was actually doing the aggressive inline skating, aggressive rollerblading, where he jumped on handrails and curbs. And um, it was a really short fab for extreme sports, I suppose. So when I quit that, I started racing BMX because my brother was racing and I was kicked out of school in seventh grade and my parents said, Hey, you're not going to go do your thing anymore. You got to come out to the BMX track with us and hang out with your brother. And so while I was hanging out there, 
Um, my dad was just like, hey, well, why don't you try racing BMX? You know, we're already out here. You got a bike at home. It's not a good bike, but if you start it and you like it, you know, we can get you a better bike and go from there. And so that was what started my racing career. It wasn't actually something that I came up with on my own. It wasn't like, hey, I want a BMX bike. I want to go out on BMX race. No, I actually got kicked out of school and my parents made me go to the BMX track. And just being there because my brother was doing it, I decided to try it. Mm-hmm. So I tried it, and next thing you know, that was uh, became my passion. Yeah, I mean, in just high school, you you were pretty much a star. Sophomore, you reached the expert level. Um, junior year, you st- st- uh, signed a three-year contract for Fox Racing, and senior year, you were on top. What led to the down- downward spiral after that? So a lot of people would have saw me and thought to themselves, you know, you know, Hoff's a great athlete. Um, he's been on the cover of a magazine. He's, you know, ranked number one in points, sponsored by companies, Fox, Airwalk Shoes, Spice Sunglasses. And they would have thought to themselves, yeah, this guy's got everything. He's great. But I had a lot of mental health struggles uh, that started when I was in middle school. And those mental health struggles that started in middle school were really kind of the internal conversation that I created that I still have to do a lot of work through with therapy and stuff um, now and meditation work now, even at 36 years old, almost 37 years old. Uh, I had a lot of anxiety, uh, social anxiety specifically. Uh, I, I, I struggle around people, which is weird because I'm a speaker. You think, okay, he's a speaker. He's a great people person. Um, I would say intellectually, I am good at communicating but when it comes to being around people, it's not the first thing that I want to do. I typically isolate. Um, I like being in smaller groups, more intimate groups, uh, and I feel safer there. And so with school, you're forced to be around groups. And I struggled to make friends. I've struggled to feel connected to people. And that struggle really led me to more isolation. And then it was like self-hate. Uh, I, I didn't ha- understand how to be compassionate towards myself because I didn't understand these experiences that I was having internally. And then that obviously made me depressed was I, I really just didn't like who I was. And, and I this is all like, in college, correct? No, this started in middle school, then through high school. Okay. So it's it, even though I'm having all of this success, um, my struggles that started in middle school, they were still going through high school, even after being on the cover of a magazine and ranked and sponsored by these companies that weren't sponsoring amateur athletes. And in that internal struggle of all these emotions that I'm not understanding how to cope with, and I don't understand how to process them and, and kind of compartmentalize them as, okay, this is my anxiety. Okay. This is my depression. This is the source of my depression. This is the source of my anxiety. This is how I deal with my anxiety. This is how I deal with my depression. This is the solution Uh, to these emotions that I'm experiencing, I didn't have any of those coping skills. And so being a young kid and going to parties, uh, starting at 18 years old, my senior year in high school, I would see people that were using mind altering substances, whether or not they they, uh, saw them as coping mechanisms for their own stuff that they were dealing with, you know, we call it might call it recreational drug, drug use. Um, I truly don't believe there's such a thing as recreational drug drug use or recreational drinking. I think that most people, all people, use mind-altering substances as a coping mechanism. It doesn't matter if it's just a glass of wine to unwind at the end of the day or to have a cigarette to take off of the edge of their anxiety. 
if you really look at the root, the mind-altering substance is always to help them cope with some kind of emotion. Well, I never thought that I would smoke weed, use drugs, and kind of be uh, a person of that uh, that would take partake in those types of things. But I had these struggles when I would go to parties, the biggest one being social anxiety. I don't like being around crowds, but I'm at a party and my friends, they're like the life of the party and the girls like the, the guy that's the life of the party. And, and, and that made that war inside of me like even bigger because now I hate myself even more. Why can't I be like them? Why can't I just hang out with people, dance, have a good time and just go with the flow? I couldn't do it, dude. I couldn't do it. And, you know, people were smoking weed and drinking and I was the only one that wasn't doing it because I said, I don't need that stuff. And then eventually, you know, I think I just broke down internally. And it was like, I'll try it. And when what I tried age smoking did, weed, did you try your first I was 18. 18. Was yeah, it after 18. you graduated high school? I seen about the time I'm, a, I'm about to graduate. So within okay. the six months of graduation. So, so it's spring of... It, it started off as just, hey, I'm just going to try this one thing, just one time. Yeah. And, and at the time, I thought to myself, well, everybody else is doing it. It's not that big of a deal, clearly, because nobody's getting in trouble. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody's dying. Nobody's losing their job. Nobody's getting kicked out of their houses. There's no real ramifications for this. And that, I think, is a huge selling point for youth today, right? Marijuana is legal in many states. It's going to be recreationally legal in the next 10 years in probably all 50 states. It's a plant. It's not a drug. It's not as bad as heroin. We have all these like justifications for why marijuana is not a big deal. And then when we use it, we tell ourselves, oh, it takes away my anxiety. I just use it for my anxiety. Well, when I took it, I thought to myself, it's not that big of a deal. I get it. I laughed. I thought I had a good time. It gave me an opportunity to fit in, which really was doing what? It was breaking down the wall of social anxiety. It was giving me a a raise in my feeling of normalcy. Like, okay, maybe this is how I become more like other people, but not realizing that these were like subconscious mechanisms that were taking place that I was not able to cognitively see uh, for many years of my life. So it started there. And within, you know, three years, it, it was a lot, a lot different because uh, weed wasn't the best coping mechanism for my internal struggles. And so while I told myself I'm only going to use weed, it didn't stop there. And I told myself I was only going to smoke weed once a month. And that's not, where, that's not where it ended. It's very interesting that a lot of professional athletes at a very young age you are put in the spotlight and you think whether it is athletes or celebrities of some sort. I interviewed a professional tennis player, Dennis Hemsek. He's uh, also known as the anxiety guy, um, well known for his anxiety stuff. He was traveling the world in high school playing Mm -hmm. tennis and he had this built up anxiety that he couldn't take. So at 25 years old in his late 20s, he wanted to end his life at some point and he quit tennis right when he was um about to have a kid he was he was engaged and he had this plan to end his life and something told him not to and then eventually things just started to get better because um he found a book he found a mentor 
and mm-hmm. then our YouTube channel, um, helping other people with anxiety. And 10 years later, he has millions and millions of views just on the topic of anxiety. But in high school, just like Michael Phelps, professional, he's very open about his anxiety from um, being in the Olympics. How can someone at a young age who has all this pressure, who other people might see as a success, take away that pressure while still being successful? The biggest key is to understand where that pressure comes from, right? Mm-hmm. Is It's recognizing that if you're feeling uncomfortable, something needs to be explored. Uh, when, you're, when you're in a place of contentment, when you're in a place of peace, joy, serenity, there's, a, there's an understanding of who you are internally. And, and, and there's this full embracement of that person, of that being that you are. And, and, and nothing bothers you about that. When you don't have that, you have discontent, you have turmoil, you have internal struggle, right? And you feel it. You can feel something's not right. I'm not in the right place. I'm not feeling the way I think I should be feeling. Uh, the, the answer to that is to always then begin to reach out. And mm-hmm. sometimes it can't be your best friend. Sometimes it can't be your mom and it can't be your dad. Sometimes uh, the people closest in your life are not the ones that provide you the answer. They're professionals, they're mentors, they're coaches. Uh, they, and you don't get to that bridge where the mentor can take you across and lead you to an understanding of what's taking place, why it's taking place or how to get through what's taking place until you do the work to get there. And when you find that individual, um, that individual then holds your hand and takes you across the bridge and we don't get there again until we speak up. And so what a lot of people do, and, and I'm guilty of this myself, still at 37 years old with all of the knowledge and experience that I've had is we go through these things and we think to ourselves, okay, I'll just keep it quiet and it'll go away. I'll just don't say anything and I'll just figure this all out on my own. Right? Well, how, how can someone open up when you're playing a sport or when you're in some type of profession at a young age, mm-hmm. how can someone open up to a coach or the mentor when they are afraid of letting that person down? Yeah, I, and I think that that's the self-shaming mechanism that takes control of our life when it's, mm-hmm. that's fueled, fueled by fear, right? If, if I open up, I will be perceived as less. Mm-hmm. In, re, in reality, if you don't open up, you will be less. I don't mean that in a shaming way, but you will not feel the relief. You will not experience the relief that makes you more by opening up, right? The fear, your brain, when it operates in fear, it wants you to stay exactly where you're at because that's comfortable. To speak up and say, something isn't right. I'm going through something. I don't know what it is, is to get extremely uncomfortable, right? It's to take the ego and move it out of the way and step forward and say, somebody make me feel uncomfortable and take me to a place of growth. Mm-hmm. And so for that person to, to, to do that, you have to understand that your growth and everything that you want is on the other side of your fear. So when you can set aside, set aside fear, you can set aside your ego, you can step forward to a place of growth, you can experience an, uncomfort, an uncomfortableness that requires you to be humble 
and willing. And when you, when you experience the, the act of humility through uh, opening up and being uncomfortable, there's this driving mechanism that will like move you forward in such a way that there's like a universal power that will really kind of just surround you. And that's when like these really amazing things start to happen. And so if you're an athlete and you're experiencing those things, you have to overcome that fear because your power as an athlete or your power as an individual, say you're not even an athlete, you're listening to me right now and you're experiencing this. Uh, the power that the universe has for you is on the other side of letting go of these fears, letting go of these anxieties, letting go of these depressions, letting go of these, these doubts. And when you can do that, it's like this energy, again, surrounds you and it catapults you to where you can, you're supposed to be, where you're capable of going. Man, that is such powerful advice. People figure this out later on in life, and I wish they mm -hmm. found this out much younger, even though there are resources available to them. But let's go back to your story. You know, you started um, using drugs recreationally just a little bit, just to ha ease up the pain a little bit, have fun with your friends. What's mm -hmm. next? What started happening? I got introduced to prescription painkillers. Prescription painkillers were a miracle for me. Or at least I perceived them to be a miracle because when I used opioid medication, it took my anxiety completely away. It took my suicidal thoughts away. Like I stopped hating myself. It seemed to take away my depression. It gave me energy. I, I oftentimes found myself struggling to have motivation you know, to get out of bed, to get a job, to be a part of these things. I just couldn't find a passion. I couldn't find a purpose. And when I, when I tried opioid medication, it gave me all of that. It gave me all of that. My brain immediately said, wow, like I'm fixed. Like starting at 12 years old, this is, this is what I've wanted to get rid of was the anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts. Now I have energy. I have all these things that I've, been saying is missing in my life. And when I say I'm saying, uh, I'm the athlete that you were talking about, that's not saying anything. I'm saying it to myself, not to somebody else. So in, in this limbo period of I'm going to wait and figure it out on my own, I found this drug called Oxycontin and Vicodin and Percocet and Codeine, uh, Promethazine. I found these opioid medications that seemed to hand me everything that I'd been asking for since I was in middle school. And immediately it was just like, I'll just take that. Or why don't the doctors just give me this? Mm -hmm. All they had to do was give me these and I'm fixed. But I told myself I would never become a drug addict. I would never let it become that bad. It won't be like him. It won't be like her. This is just to help my anxiety. This is just to give me energy. This is just to take away my depression. This is just because it makes me feel normal. You see those justifications that I put. It was just, it was just, it was Temporary. just. That's what we do. That's just what we do. That's what kids do. I hear it all the time. It's in my inbox every week. It's in my, uh, my email every other week. It's, it's in front of my face. I'm just doing it for my anxiety. I won't become what you did. I won't become what she did. That's always always the conversation that a person who's about to struggle with addiction has always not realizing that 
when you find the substance that becomes a, an effective coping mechanism, at least in your mind, you cannot stop from going after it. Because for the first time in your life, you feel relief. And relief is what you've always wanted. And if this gives you relief, then you can't survive without it, right? So your brain now says, I can't survive without having this coping mechanism. So I'm going to take more of it. But I'm not going to let it destroy my life because I need to have my life. But this is the instinctual coping mechanism that my brain's going to go after to fix itself, go after it to uh, find peace. And I found out very quickly that mind-altering substances are never coping mechanisms for stuff that we're, we're going through. They're never the answer. They don't actually fix things. They take things from you. I started using Oxycontin and Vicodin at 18 years old. By the time I was 21 years old, I was inside a home robbing a family at gunpoint for their prescription medication. The biggest mistake that I've made in my entire life. But when you get into these things with the intention that it'll never be that, and it becomes that, like it does for so many people, you become willing to do whatever it takes. You know, I could not survive without Oxycontin in my body. One, because of the physical dependency of uh, Oxycontin that comes with it, because it's basically heroin in a pill form. It's basically heroin that just comes from a doctor in an orange bottle versus uh, a cellophane wrapper on the street from a, from a drug dealer. And so there's a physical dependency that comes with opioids, and then there is the addiction component of my dependency. And when I didn't have that drug, my brain and my body would panic because my body felt and my brain felt that I could not survive without it. And so all of the emotions that I felt when I was 12 years old, felt when I was 18 years old, I'm now 21 years old. If I'm not on this drug, I felt all of those emotions times a thousand. Did you try to stop? Oh, yeah. You don't just stop, though. Mm. If, if it was that easy, I would have stopped, right? You, everybody you, tries to you, stop. You're still doing BMX at this time, or you stop? No, no, I'm out. I, I stopped doing everything. Uh-huh. And so I was just on the street selling drugs to my friends so I could buy my own pills to keep me, you know, normal. And eventually I couldn't get the pills anymore. And our friend was stealing them from his mom and selling them to us in the beginning. And she caught him. And when she caught him, she started locking him up. When she started locking him up, we started going through withdrawals. And we couldn't find that many people selling them on the street. And so we decided, you know what, let's just go rob her and get those pills. And so that's what we did. And uh, I've seen whatever it takes look a lot different. It's different for everybody. And what was the point when you became homeless for six months? I was actually arrested for that robbery in 2005. Cops raided the place that I was staying at, took me to jail. Hadn't talked to my family in three years. I get out. My parents spent a bunch of money on an attorney. You know, a hot topic right now is uh, systemic racism, social injustice. Uh, I've been in the courtroom with African-Americans, with minorities, who didn't have money, who didn't have the skin color I had, that didn't come from the side of town that I had, that committed less of crimes than I committed and went to prison for 17 years. I had money. I had the skin color. I came from the right area. I was given probation with a strike on my record for armed robbery. Mm-hmm. I get out. 
um, after being sentenced to a treatment center for 90 days and I relapsed within 30 days of getting out. And then two years later, I was homeless. You know, it only took two more years of me using for me to lose everything. Like, and when I say homeless, uh, you know, I listen to some people's stories about homeless and their homeless is, you know, I was sleeping on my buddy's couch or, um, you know, I just didn't live with my parents. No, I, uh, I was sleeping in fields, sleeping behind dumpsters, you know, sleeping in the street. If I was lucky getting motels, if I was luckier, I was getting somebody's couch or somebody's floor. And so that was um, in the late summer and fall of 2006. Why didn't you ever go back to your parents? So I did. I did try to go back to my parents, but my parents, you know, my addiction had, you know, it was just filled with lying and deception and, and manipulation and cheating and my parents were done with me. They didn't, they thought that I was also choosing drugs. My parents at that time thought the drug addiction was a choice. Would just stop using drugs and you can be a part of the family again. I slept on my parents' porch when I started putting needles in my arm in 2006 because I needed help. And if I didn't get help, I was going to die, you know. And uh, my parents came home from work and they kicked me off the porch and called the cops. They wouldn't let me come home. Mm-hmm. And when when did you get arrested again? From after being Janu- homeless for six months. January twenty first, two thousand and seven was when I was arrested. January twenty uh-huh. first, uh, excuse me, January twenty second, uh, two thousand and seven. And what was, what got you arrested again? Was it armed robbery again? No, well, yeah. So I violated my probation. They found me in a house. I was on the run because okay. I stopped showing up to probation and drug testing. So there was a warrant for my arrest and they, uh, I broke into a house that was up for rent cause I was homeless and I slept in this house. Well, somebody came in, uh, the night, the day after I broke in and to show some people the house to possibly rent it. Well, I was passed out on the floor with needles next to me and they tried to wake me up and I didn't wake up. And so they called the paramedics, uh, to report a drug overdose and at like two o'clock, on January 22nd, 2007, I woke up and there were four cops with the guns drawn moving into the room on me. And uh, that was it. I was arrested that day. And how long were you sentenced for? Uh, four and a half years. And I did uh, just just under two years. I did uh, 23 and a half months. Mm-hmm. So from January, uh, January of 2007 until December of 2008. Then what was the shift from how you were before to how you are now? So good question. So on January 21st, 2007, I had a spiritual experience. Uh, If you want to call, I met my maker. I met a power greater than myself. Uh, My faith is in Jesus Christ. I don't push my faith on anybody, but this Mm -hmm. is what happened for me um, was a spiritual awakening. Um, That awakening was to my creator. Um, specifically for myself, Jesus Christ, and something happened, man. Something happened. It, it changed my internal perspective of life almost instantly. It didn't fix me, but it changed my perspective, and it allowed me to operate on a new, a new wavelength that took me to where I'm at right now. 
And I would say that um, that wavelength is the spirit of truth. And that is something really hard that takes a lot of time to develop. And I continue to develop it um, because it requires so much removal of ego. It requires so much removal of confirmation bias or biases that you may have as a result of uh, childhood programming, as a result of institutional programming, as a result of societal programming. And so when I got to prison, I was by myself, basically, in a cell with this newfound faith. And this newfound faith created a new perspective in how I saw life. And so I would say immediately I went from being somebody who knew everything, was a, uh, should be a coach, should be a, a CEO, should be a Fortune 500 uh, CEO, uh, a powerful figure to being this person who knew absolutely nothing, who was a student, who was looking around people, places, and things for answers, for direction, for guidance, for inspiration, for understanding. And so I, I went from being this person who knew everything to this person who knew nothing. And when I was able to live life in a place of humility where I could wake up and say, even in this place now with 13 years of sobriety, um, one of the most successful substance abuse speakers in the country, I know nothing. Wow. I know, I know nothing. Wow. I, I know some things, but dude, trust me, I know nothing. You know what I mean? I have to recalibrate perspective. I have to recalibrate instinct. I have to think hard on situations. I have to check my ego at the door often, and I have to get kicked, so to speak, in the nuts time and time again and allow myself to feel that pain, experience that humility uh, so I can learn, so I can grow. Because if I don't stay in that place, then I'm going to stay exactly where I'm at today for the rest of my life. And that's a scary place for me. That's and so powerful. To, to, to be where I'm at in a prison cell, finally accepting that I know nothing and that I need somebody to teach me, it just allowed me to embrace my spiritual experience, grow through the scripture uh, of, the, of the big book of the Bible, um, and embrace those spiritual principles, and, and not only embrace them, but live them out, right? People can, can read some of the greatest spiritual scriptures. They can read some of the stuff from the greatest philosophers. They can go to the Tony Robbins uh, conventions. They can listen to Gary Vee and Ed Milet and Andy Priscilla and, and Nathan Harmon and Tony Hoffman and follow your podcast. But if you don't actually believe what you're hearing and act it out, it does nothing. Was this like a a, like instant thing or did it happen gradually in prison? No, I, it's, it, it was gradual, right? The instant thing was the spiritual experience that changed mm -hmm. my perspective. Once I had a perspective shift, it was now about the work, mm -hmm. right? Think of, um, think of a plant, right? We can put a, we can take a seed and, and, and we can put it in a, we can put it in a pot, right? And then after we put this seed in a pot, we, we, we can pour some water on it and we pour some water on it, what do we gotta do? We have to wait. What are we waiting for? For the plant to come out of the seed. Well, after a week, you might see that small little plant pop, pop above the soil, right? Do we walk away from it, leave it alone? The plant is there, right? No, you have to pour more water on it. 
After you pour more water on it, you got to give it some light. Once you get more light, it grows. Well, when it gets full size, do we stop watering it? No, we can't. Do we stop nurturing it? No, we can't. Do you stop giving it sunlight? No, you can't because those are the, those are the necessities that a plant requires to survive. So for me, even though I had a seed that popped and life was created, that was the new perspective. It was up to me to put water on it. It was up to me to put it in a good pot, to make sure that the soil was rich of nutrients. It was up to me to make sure that I was receiving the sunlight that could help this perspective grow into potential, mm -hmm. real life potential that manifested itself in today. So when, when, when people see my story, when people see my success with speaking, you have to understand, I was doing the work for the success that I'm having now 14 years ago. It was 14 years ago that I was watering this plant. It was 14 years ago that I was watering this perspective, this uh, persona that I'm living in. You're just seeing it now. And the stuff that I'm doing today and the work is you're not going to see it for three years. You know, having a best-selling book, having a, a devotional that changes people's lives, having a bigger speaking platform, my uh, recovery centers. Those are all things that I'm planting and I'm working on now, but you're not going to see them for five years. That is powerful because I want to go into your BMX. And I, I remember just going off of that, planting of the seed, watering the plant. You told yourself in prison... I don't know if this happened before or after the spiritual awakening that one day you were going to go to Olympics and you're going to go pro and BMX. Mm -hmm. what, what caused that? My faith. Uh -huh. My faith. I felt this strong calling towards, towards those events. Uh -huh. And I just felt like, you know, I remember when I said that for an athlete or human being to embrace their full potential to embrace the greatness that was given to them, they must remove these layers. Mm -hmm. And that perspective, perspective shift allowed me to, to dig into the soil and remove the bad parts of the soil, right? And, and insert new healthy parts of the soil that were going to allow me to embrace my full potential. And I could feel that. I could feel what my faith was doing and it felt me call me to this direction. And I said, I'm going to go there. Like I'm going to go there and I don't care what people think. I'm going to go there and I don't care how many struggles I have to get there. Cause I'm going to overcome each one of those struggles. I don't care how long it takes because my ex, my, my faith says through the exercise of willingness, through the exercise of humility and through the exercise of patience, if I'm operating within my gift, it will become mine, mm -hmm. but not for me, for others, right? My platform, these jerseys behind me, a world championship jersey, silver medal, Brooke Crane's Olympic medal uh, jersey from 2016. Those are not for me. Those are for you. Those are for everybody that's listening. When my life became about other people, the pursuit of bettering other people, I realized that we become unstoppable, right? Because our purpose is to make other people better. Our purpose is to share our struggles. Our purpose is to inspire people to speak up about the things that they're going through so they can remove those things that are basically walling them from their 
Let's call it their destiny, mm-hmm. that are walling them from their potential. And that's how we do this. We work together to help people grow and empower them. And when we empower them, they win. And when they win, we win. And the more we win, the more we can turn around and help other people and show other people the guided path that has been created through our own empowerment of releasing ourselves from these, these demons or struggles that we carry. Now let's, let's go into, let's transition. You did a lot of core work in prison. You had a spiritual awakening. Uh, I saw in your videos that you used to work out a lot. You didn't have a bike. You couldn't mm-hmm. practice with a bike, but you told yourself that you're going to do whatever is possible when you get that chance and your chance will come that you will be ready because you did the work that most people don't want to do because mm-hmm. it's not fun. And you did, right. you did the work that was not fun. Now you're out of prison. What's mm-hmm. next? Straight to the bike. Straight to the I bike. got out of prison on December 13, 2008. I would say by the grace of God, I rebuilt the relationship with my mother, my father, and my brother. And they picked me up and took me straight to the BMX track. Mm-hmm. I went to get breakfast a real meal for the first time in two years and went straight to the BMX track. There was no delay. You know, a lot of people would have said, I'll start next week. I'll go next week. I'm going to hang out with some people first. Uh, and I think that's a fatal mistake. Straight to the BMX track, dude. I went straight to my dream. I went straight to what I felt was pulling me in that direction. I went straight to continuing the work that I did in prison. I continued it into the real world, now with a bicycle, now with a gym, now with a road bike, now with freedom. And uh, five months later, I raced my first professional race. I took third place. I didn't touch a bike in seven years. Mm-hmm. Came back and took third place in my first pro race I'd ever raced in my life. That first year, I won five pro races, moved up to the Olympic level one year after being back on my bicycle, was invited to the Olympic Training Center by the United States of America one year after being back on my bicycle. My first year at the Olympic level, the elite level, AA, uh, BMX Pro, I made six finals. I mean, I, I, was, on a, wow. I was on a tear. I was and on a tear. people who training consistently and they're not getting there, but you, within the first one to two years, you're tearing it up. Yeah. And, and, and again, I, I truly believe that sometimes people want to be Kobe Bryant, right? <laughs> yeah. And they're, they're five foot tall. Uh-huh. You know, I, and that's not to say that somebody that's five foot tall can't make the NBA, right? But I, I had a gift in racing a bicycle. I was on the cover of a magazine, uh, ranked number one in the country in points my senior year, had all of these endorsements. And so my dream really was an embracing of the gift that I was given, right? And so once I removed those walls, once I did the work for that seed to grow, there was only one thing that could happen. And that was the universe would move everything out of the way and make room for me to be successful because we're supposed to win. But a lot of us try and put ourselves in a category we don't belong in because we want to be like this person. We want to have what that person has. Knowing that we have a gift over here, but we, we look at this gift and we go, I don't want that. That's not what I want. I want what that guy has. For me, it all happened because I just said, you know what? This is what I got. I love it. I love it for the first time in my life. I love the gift that I have. So I'm going to use it. 
and it allowed me to get out of prison after doing all the work that I was doing and, and get back on a bicycle and find some success. Now, obviously, I didn't become a champion at 30, 30 years old. I got second place in the world. Um, I made finals with the best in the world, but I also came back from the dead. You know, so when you look at my accomplishments, at least for myself, I look at it and say, I did more than uh, 99% of people could ever do without having to go through what I went through. And what I went through, I was still able to get myself to a place where I could see where, where my God was able to show me, this is the potential you had as a young man. This is what you could have had if as a young man, you had the perspective I've given you. If you had the work ethic I've given you now, if you had the humility, the willingness that I've given you now, and I'm okay with that. To be able to look back and say, man, I had a lot and I sure walked away from a lot and gave up a lot, um, but I was able to get some back and a taste of it It was a, a very gratifying feeling. But I feel like you had to go through that experience to get to your level of humility, maturity. And, you know, a lot of people go through their own struggle. And Steve Harvey says you have to pursue your gift. Steve Harvey says that all the time. Most people are trying to pursue something that is not their gift. Pursue mm-hmm. your gift, not your passion. You hit, you hit it, like, right on. Like, if you know what you're good at, even though you may not like it, eventually mm-hmm. you will like it because you are so good at it. And you know what? And you may not. The truth is, though, you may not like it. Uh-huh. Because if you don't learn to be grateful for it, you can't ever appreciate it, right? You know, my, I had a, a video guy that's no longer my video guy, um, an amazing producer. One of the, the best videographers um, I will probably meet in my entire life. And he hated working behind the computer. He hated working behind the camera. He, he, he said it many times. I should be writing screenplays. I should be acting. I'm supposed to be on the other side of the camera. And I thought to myself, do you not see the work that you do? Your gift is here. Like it's evident. Like you're supposed to be one of the best ever behind the camera. You know, like Shaq will tell you, Shaq will tell you the same thing that I've said when I was a kid. I, when I played basketball, I wanted to be Shaq. When Shaq played baseball or basketball, who did he want to be? He wanted to be like Steph Curry. He wanted to be a fast guard that could shoot the ball. He didn't yeah. want to be the big guy at 250 pounds that was dunking on people. He didn't even like what he was given. It's so true. Then, you know, you had the life-changing injury. while the 2011. To 2011 in the pursuit of being in the Olympics. Now, what was the transition from being an athlete to being a coach? And what did I it teach work, you? Yeah, so I had to work through some, some heavy emotions, right? I was devastated uh, to start, uh-huh. total devastation, uh, seeing my dream fall away. Second was a period of depression that I had to work through. And then third was a period of recreation where I had to recreate myself Mm -hmm. using the core principles, using the core values that I established when I was in prison. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like 
as people, we have to reinvent ourselves many times in a lifetime. And those individuals who are able to reinvent themselves time and time again have a belief system, a core belief system about who they are, what they're capable of doing, and the value that they bring to the world, that when they, when they experience devastation, when they experience depression, when they experience loss, they're able to find the North Star again mm-hmm. and move towards that North Star. And that was really the first time in my life that I think I was shown that the work that I did when I was in prison had created a, a resilience in me that I never had before. And that was that I could get knocked down, get up with a concussion, so to speak, blurry vision, and still find the North Star. And so as I worked through those emotions, you know, I tell people by just focusing on my microprocess of brushing my teeth and making my bed and organizing my stuff and staying into this routine, uh, coaching kind of showed itself to me because I was already doing it a little bit while I was racing. I, I liked the idea of training. I liked the idea of technology and setting up routines. It was already kind of how I was. And so I, I, and I've always been like a coaching person. I mean, think about my speaking, right? It's just me coaching mm-hmm. through words, right? It's me giving you my philosophy, my coaching ideology on life and giving it to others, right? So they can put it in their playbook and they can be successful. And so it kind of just came to me. I was already coaching a little bit. And when I had that injury, it was like, okay, I'll try coaching because at this point, I now need a way to, to survive. I need a way to live. My mom has a conversation with me, 28 years old. She says, son, you need to get a job. You're at home. Like you can't be here. I'm starting my nonprofit. There's no money in that. I'm speaking. I'm not getting paid for that. Um, So now I have my coaching. So I got to figure out how to make money with that. And I coached a lot of people for free. And at first I could get $50 a month. Um, But four years later, uh, I was one of the best coaches in in the world for the sport of BMX, uh, known in just about every established country for BMX for the athletes that I had. Uh, whether they were from uh, Bolivia, whether they were from Ecuador, Australia, Germany, the United States, France, uh, Colombia. I had athletes all over the globe, and uh, they were high performers. And you went to the Olympics for it too, Rio? Yep, 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 Brooke Crane. I coached uh, Connor Fields, who was the 2016 Olympic Games gold medalist. I coached him briefly uh, in 2000 and. 14 or 15. Mm-hmm. Uh, I coached Emilio Fala, who was a two-time Olympian from 2008 to 2012 from Ecuador. I coached Johnny Robinson, who was an Olympic medalist from 2008 at the Beijing Games. He was a uh, bronze medalist. I've been able to coach um, some very decorated athletes, and that was an honor to be able to have those individuals trust me with their performance and to see their performance enhanced as a result of my ideologies Mm -hmm. that I created for training. And then to be a part of the Olympics was something that um, you just, uh, it's just different than any other sporting event. It really is just different than every uh, sporting event. And to be a part of that at the capacity of helping an individual get there Mm -hmm. was just a feeling that um, I'll never forget. And Tony, I mean, I have, 
a lot more questions, but I think I'm running low and it's time for the room. So I just have a couple more questions. Sure. How can someone find their gift? You found it early on. But what mm-hmm. if someone is struggling? I get this asked all the time. I did a speaking engagement yesterday. I got asked this. How can someone find out one thing they're good at? First things first, I didn't know I had a gift until I was 23 and in a prison cell. <laughs> uh-huh. I hated my gift. Chances are you have a gift and you probably hate it. Uh-huh. You know, if somebody's good at math, that's a gift. And I'll tell you why it's a gift, because Google's paying a million dollars a year to people that can program self-driving cars. And somebody that's good at math has the skill set to de- design programs that make cars drive by themselves. Mm-hmm. But you might not see that your ease in math is actually a gift. Why? Because who thinks math is cool? I don't know many people that think math is cool. So we judge ourselves according to society, right? Well, it's math. Who cares? Yeah, it's easy for me, but nobody thinks it's cool. That's Remember what I said, we have to embrace mm-hmm. who we are. You know, maybe, maybe you like doing girls' hair at school. You know, you're in the classroom braiding your friend's hair. I know people that are making six figures doing hair. You know what I mean? That's, that, that's most likely your gift. You just don't see it. Maybe you like mm-hmm. doing people's makeup, but you don't see that as a way to make money. I know people that are making six figures doing makeup seven days a week. That's a oh. gift. You know what I'm saying? We don't, there was a guy that uh, was in prison who liked to clean. So he started a cleaning company. And then the next thing you know, he had a million dollar cleaning company because in he prison. realized asked when he got out of prison oh my god he liked cleaning that was just he was ocd he liked cleaning organizing things well guess what that's a gift why because not everybody's organized and some people want people who are good at organizing and cleaning things to organize and clean their life right maybe you're a good listener you know, you'd like to listen to people and help people through their problems. Well, you know what? There's not a lot of great therapists out there. Why? Because it's not natural for them to listen to other people talk. Maybe you should be pursuing psychology because you're a good listener. Mm-hmm. You know, these are things that most people may not see as gifts that are actually gifts that allow them to get onto a path and provide for themselves and a family and make people better. What feels better for a woman than getting their makeup done, um, getting their hair done, getting their nails done? I don't want to say all women are that way, but many women love to do self-care. And when a woman can make another woman feel pretty, what's the difference between that and me and having a conversation with somebody and inspiring them to be great and they leave there feeling, man, I feel like I can do this. It's not going to be some people, it's easier said than done. And sometimes you have to, I, I just tell people all the time, try out different things yeah, and see what sticks. It's not going to and be like an instant thing. One year, you can try out five different things every month or every few months, try out something different. And if something and I will sticks, tell you this, just run with it. I will tell you this. If the activity that you are doing you forget about life, your emotions that you uh, struggle with diminish, and time seems to stop moving while you're doing it, 
that's your gift. Wow. Wow. And yeah, I, that, that could, again, be math, English, science, hair, makeup, yeah. sports, making music. Um, we all can do things, and sometimes when we do things, we think to ourselves, yeah, this sucks. Mm-hmm. But there's those one things that we do, and time stops. And when we're finished, we think to ourselves, whoa, it's been two hours. That might be your gift. Man. You know, I would say be careful if you, you do that with video games because two hours can go by really quick playing <laughs> Fortnite. And, uh, unless, you're, unless you're making money doing it, then go for right, it. Right, 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 right. Unless you're ninja, then, uh, you know. Yeah. But, uh, Tony, one yeah. last question. I think this sure. is question my entire brand teenage impact is based off of this one word and that's resiliency i've interviewed you're the 65th interviewed i've interviewed people who have gone to prison you know nathan harman was one i've interviewed people sexually abused at the age of six i interviewed people parents divorced people passing away what does resiliency mean to you it means no matter what happens to you you don't give up mm-hmm it means no matter what happens to you, you always choose the role of responsibility to deal with that whatever happens and become better. Mm-hmm. People that aren't resilient become victims. People that aren't resilient are negative. People that aren't resilient are self-destructive, self-sabotagers. The great thing is, if you're that right now, you don't have to be that. You can choose to be resilient. You can choose to find the silver lining in every bad event. You can choose to find the thing that you're supposed to grow through as a result of something that you never wanted to happen to you. Mm -hmm. And by that power of choice, you embrace what resilience is, and you will continue to do this through life. And you will realize that all of these events were actually there to help you and not destroy you but the only thing that helped you is how the only thing that allowed these events to help you was your perspective the the perspective of resilience no matter what happens to me i'm going to be better as a result of this and that's exactly and i will what not give up that's exactly what you've done over the years i mean we we were speaking uh, before this podcast episode and you had about 200, over 200 speaking engagements lined up, all canceled because of the coronavirus. But that led, that didn't just happen overnight. You went through the different struggles of drug addiction, um, going to jail, becoming homeless. And then it was a gradual process until you said, you know what? I'm going to take one step forward, closer to my dream. And when my time comes, I'm going to be ready for it. And Tony, you definitely were ready for your time to come because you did the dirty work. You did the things that most people don't want to do. And I'm super grateful to have interviewed you for Teenage Impact Podcast. And where can people find you? Uh, You can find me on social media, Instagram mainly, Tony M. Uh Hoffman. Tony M. Hoffman on Instagram, TonyHoffmanSpeaking.com is my website. You can find me on YouTube. I've done a TED Talk and have been featured on Goldcast with over 6 million views. Uh, You can search Tony Hoffman on YouTube. 
You can also find me on Facebook if you're a boomer and into Facebook. You can find me at Tony. Hey, man, I'm a millennial. I'm on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> man, I, appreciate- I am too, but you know what I mean. Yeah, man. I appreciate your time, brother. Yes, thank you so much. It's been uh, an honor to be a part of your show. Glad uh, that you're plugging away. You've got 65 in, and I wish you nothing but luck moving forward. The best. And uh, especially with your speaking career, grind it out. You're going to hear more no's than you hear yeses. And more, we're taking in other directions than we can't wait to have you at our event. Just stay Mm -hmm. with it. Resilient, my man. I truly enjoyed interviewing Tony Hoffman. Tony reminds me of someone I interviewed nine months ago. His name is Nathan Harmon. They both were in prison, had a drug, alcohol addiction, turned their life around to be an international speaker. Tony had a problem in middle school and high school. He was going through anxiety. He was going through depression. He had suicidal thoughts. People thought he had it all. He was on magazine covers. He was ranked one of the best BMX writers, athletes. And people thought he had this idea of success. But deep down inside, he was hurting. That's where he started to experiment with drugs and alcohol. All it took is that one time of him trying to fit in. Tony's recommendation for anyone going through those struggles and putting that pressure on themselves to perform in their sport or their certain activity they're doing in high school is talk to your coach, talk to your mentor, talk to your parents, because they're going to help you get over this. You cannot get through mental health struggles alone. You have people, you have loved ones who will provide you with the help you need and deserve to get over this little hump. When they get you this help, you start asking yourself these tough questions that's going to help you get out of this rut and realize what's causing these mental health struggles. It's going to get you to the root cause. And the second takeaway I want you to get out of interviewing Tony is realize what your gift is. You may not like what your gift is. Maybe your gift is cutting hair. Maybe your gift is cooking. Maybe your gift is videography, photography, speaking, whatever it is. Don't try to look at someone and tell yourself, I want to be just like them. When you know you're not good at that one thing, whatever you're good at, because I'm sure you're good at something, go pursue that gift because you're going to be better in that gift than what most people are. Thank you for tuning in for the Teenage Impact Podcast. If you haven't done so already, if you want to be notified closer to my book launch, which is September 15th, click the link in the description. I'm also going to provide you with life-changing tips about goal setting, pursuing your meaning, changing your life, overcoming different mental health struggles. If you're not following me on Instagram already, go follow me at Shlomo Solson. I provide you with life-changing quotes, videos. I provide you with longer, long-form and short-form video. I provide you with short clips of some of these interviews. So go follow me on Instagram, Ashlamasos, and you're also going to see a personal side to me. And until next time, peace.